Yeah, we're well, let me introduce you. All right, you're we'll start there. <laughs> uh, welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. And tonight we discuss a question of enormous importance to America's national security, whether or not to close the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay. In your program, there is an extensive bio of tonight's moderator, Barbara Starr. So I will say just a few words about her. Barbara Starr is an Emmy-winning producer and respected journalist with considerable experience covering American defense policy and national security issues. She has served as CNN's Pentagon correspondent since 2001. Wherever in the world that America has an interest or is engaged militarily, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Persian Gulf, the Horn of Africa, uh, the Chi Chinese North Korean border, Russia, Beirut, you're likely to find Barbara Starr. Even in America, after Hurricane Katrina, Starr was the only reporter allowed to travel with the Lieutenant General charged with directing hurricane relief efforts. Before joining CNN, Barbara Starr worked at ABC News, where she was an award-winning producer covering the Pentagon. She also covered energy matters for Business Week magazine and a U.S. national security and defense policy for Jane's Defense Weekly, the London-based news magazine. In 2014, Barbara was presented the Jefferson Lincoln Award from the Panetta Institute for Public Policy. We are grateful and fortunate that you will lead our discussion tonight. Barbara Starr. Thank you. Very gracious introduction. Uh, you know, after all of that, the best part is actually being out of Washington for a good 24 hours and being able to come up here and chat with people. I think everyone would agree it's a good thing always to uh, get out of Washington often. Um, <laughs> that part's off the record. Um, <laughs> One, a couple of administrative things, but I know everybody knows this uh, here a lot better than me. We have some microphones when we get to questions after about half, maybe 20 minutes of, of setting the stage here. A couple of microphones up there, but if there's people up there that want to ask questions, the lights are a bit uh, bright, so wave your arms wildly or come downstairs and ask your question because I'm not sure we'll see you. When you do ask your question, uh, you guys know, let's really try and make it a question some people will have very strong feelings, and we understand that, but let's try and put a question at the end, at least, of whatever uh, <coughs> your question may be. Let me take a minute now and introduce uh, the panel, who is uh, both gentlemen absolutely terrific on this issue. Uh, first, Tom Jocelyn, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and Senior Editor of the Long War Journal. I would recommend that to you online, the Long War Journal. Must reading if you're interested in national security. Uh, some very fascinating things emerge there before they emerge other places. Um, his research is focused on Al-Qaeda and how its affiliates operate around the world. Um, he was a senior counterterrorism advisor to May May Mayor Giuliani in New York during his 2008 presidential campaign. He's testified before many congressional committees and his work has appeared in many places. You can all look that up for yourselves. Also, Alberto Moro, a senior fellow here at Harvard, probably well known to many of you, uh, has held positions with the State Department um, and in the Bush administration was general counsel to the U.S. Information Agency in beginning in 2001, uh, Alberto was the general counsel of the Navy, and he led efforts in the DOD to oppose some of the Bush administration policies uh, on interrogation tactics at Guantanamo. So we'll be getting into all of that. Um, I, we, you know now who we are, but the three of us want to know just a little bit more for a second about how, who, who you are here in the audience. So I want to see a show of hands. Don't tell me what your position is on Guantanamo, but how many people came tonight, show of hands, with an opinion about what they think needs should be done with Guantanamo Bay? If you're comfortable, how many people come here with an opinion? That's pretty interesting. That is pretty interesting. We were curious about that. And can I also just ask, um, 
undergrad, grad fellows. How many undergrad here? Great. Grad? Anybody? Fabulous. And fellows who will know more than I certainly will about anything. So already intimidated. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Sorry? Faculty. Faculty. I'm sorry. All right. Faculty. Oh. <laughs> Harvard mistake number one, ask if there's a professor in the audience. <laughs> Everybody welcome. And we want, all right, so you, you, know, you guys have to start thinking of your questions now. Um, so we'll, I'm gonna ask uh, both Tom and Alberto to start with maybe three, four minutes to lay the, t lay the table here on what their positions are and what they see with Guantanamo Bay, what they think should be done and why. So, Tom, let me start with you. Go for it. All right, sure. Well, thank you, Barbara, for being here. Thank you for having me today. And thank you to Carrie, wherever she is, for putting up with my uh, ridiculous schedule. Um, I've been covering Guantanamo for a number of years. Uh, I'm, by way of background, I'm basically a nerd who's just interested in jihadi, how jihadi organizations work. Uh, really, that touches on policy debates, you know, like Guantanamo and everything else. But to be honest with you, I'm most interested in the nuts and bolts of how jihadi organizations work, and of course Guantanamo, the files that have come out of Guantanamo contain a lot of details about that in various ways that I found interesting, and that's how I initially got interested in, in all of this. Um, but you know, it's true, as Barbara says, that a lot of people have opinions, and as you guys demonstrated, a lot of people have opinions on Guantanamo, and I would say opinions run very passionate on Guantanamo. I've, as Barbara said, I've testified a number of times for Congress, and the first time I testified, my then fiance was with me. And it was basically like walking in the OK Corral, because it was just a shootout for about three and a half hours. And so every time I go to a Guantanamo event now, my wife looks at me and says, are you sure you want to go do that? And I said, well, I think I'm going to get a more civilized response here at Harvard than I would at the House of Representatives, which I think, so, which I think says a lot. Uh, you know, but uh, anyway, so passions run high on Guantanamo. I'm, I'm not an ideologue on the issue at all. I'm more of a nuts and bolts type of guy. And so my, my approach is going to be to sort of go through what I think the nuts and bolts are on the issue. And I'm going to start with a different question, is why isn't Guantanamo closed yet? Why isn't it already closed? And the reason is we have 89 detainees left right now. Now, if you start there, you realize that's not exactly a huge detainee population. This is a discrete number of cases that could be solved if we wanted to. And if you look at the 89 cases that are there, 66 of them were recommended by President Obama's Guantanamo Review Task Force for either continued detention on the law of war, that's 34 of the 66, or another 31 of them were recommended for prosecution. Right? And then an additional one has actually been convicted already uh, a, a military commission down at Guantanamo. So that's the 66 right there of the 89. 74% of the detainees who are there were either by President Obama's own task force, recommended for prosecution, recommended for continued detention on the law of war, and one of them has already been convicted. The remaining uh, 23 cases you're dealing with 17 of them are Yemenis who were approved for transfer under certain conditions because their home country is, of course, being uh, you know, in the middle of a, a, an incredibly complicated civil war right now where Al-Qaeda is making a lot of gains. And these, are, these 17 Yemenis who are approved for conditional detention basically can be transferred according to Obama's task force at some point under certain security conditions being met. Uh, and these weren't guys who were deemed innocent or anything of the sort. Basically, they were approved for transfer under certain security measures being put in place. And then the remaining six were approved for transfer outright. They could be transferred in place somewhere. And so that's your 89 cases that you have left. You have, you know, 66 of the 89 are the, the category that broke down, and the remaining 23 are exactly as I laid it forward. What I'm going to say here tonight is um, when you look at that population, the reality of the matter is that it's, a lot more, it's been a lot more complicated, especially because of politics and variety of reasons to solve these issues and bring a resolution to the whole thing. And where I probably disagree with some people who are opposed to closing Guantanamo is I think a lot of these cases, um, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm gonna stipulate that right up front, but I still, as a nerd who's gone through all the files that are available online and all the publicly available information, I think a lot of these cases could be tried in a, a court here in the US, a federal court. And I don't think there's any reason why a lot of them aren't being tried as, as for reasons other than politics and basically uh, the stigma that comes with Guantanamo. I think if you really wanted a solution to start uh, closing it and getting more people out of there, if you think about the numbers I gave to you, this isn't coming down to a game of how do we transfer more guys abroad. This is coming to a game of how do we 
actually prosecute the guys who have been recommended for prosecution, and what do we do with the guys who are determined to be too dangerous to release but not feasible for prosecution right now? I think even some of the guys who were deemed uh, not feasible for prosecution could be prosecuted, to be honest with you. And that's my own non-legal opinion on the matter after looking through their files. And what's happened here, um, because there's no real legal sort of end game to any of this, that basically what's happened is that you have a lot of, I would say, as a nervous study of this stuff, dangerous individuals who are being approved for transfer and release. Some of these guys could, in fact, be prosecuted, I think, in a federal court and convicted and, and put away. And one of the examples I use on this is, um, and I was just telling Alberto before on this, you know, in the U.S. here, we, we lose sight of the, the whole history of all this. There was, there was a guy, I'm a New Yorker, I'm from New York, and I, I walk the streets of New York uh, you know, multiple times a week. There was a guy who was convicted on terrorism charges of plotting attacks on behalf of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others uh, for Al-Qaeda after 9-11. And he operated right in the garment district of New York. And he was convicted on terrorism charges and put away for 20, 30 years, something along those lines. His case, nobody's talking about his case right now at all, because it's been settled, it's sort of out of the way. His father, however, is at Guantanamo. And his father, if you believe all the intelligence on him, and certainly Obama's task force did and a variety of other independent bodies that looked at this, his father was part of this whole plotting post 9-11 against the US on behalf of Al-Qaeda. And his father's at Guantanamo, and there's no end in sight to his case, right? And so I would use that as an example of a guy who I think, you know, seeing his son being prosecuted and sentenced and sent away and his, his case being brought to a conclusion, I don't understand, since it's basically the same fact set as his father, and I, as the nerd, I'll get into this afterwards if you want, it's basically the same fact set on his father, why he couldn't be prosecuted as well. So that's where I'm gonna leave it for now. There's a lot of other different uh, side issues, but that's sort of my sketch of the whole issue. Alberto? Well, Barbara, first of all, thanks. Thanks for being here, and delighted to be here with Tom, who's a true expert on the, uh, the issue of Guantanamo. I, um, I think what we ought to start is really defining what we mean by Guantanamo, because actually Guantanamo means several different things. And uh, can't hear? Let me try. Is it, is it better now? Better now? OK. Let, let's start by defining what we mean by Guantanamo. Guantanamo is actually several different things. It's a detention facility. Uh, which is a prison, like many other prisons in the United States or elsewhere would be. It's how we deal with the 89 detainees who are in Guantanamo. What is the basket of legal measures and policy measures that we adopt to, to deal with them? It's a side where military commissions are being held. And so the issue of what, where the military commissions are delivering true justice to these individuals is an issue there. Um, it's a place where many people believe uh, constitutes a crime scene because torture was applied at Guantanamo. And most individuals around the world believe that human rights of the detainees in Guantanamo are being violated every single day. And lastly, it's a, it's a very potent international symbol that hurts the United States every single day, has hurt and impeded the achievement of our strategic objectives in the war on terror, and has constituted a strategic gift to, uh, to, to our adversaries in the war on terror. All of this is avoidable. But let me, let me start now with perhaps what are some of the underbrush issues. The first is, as a prison, does using Guantanamo as a place to house these 89 detainees make any sense? And the, the answer to that is, is pretty clearly absolutely not. I mean, we're spending $445 million a year to, uh, to house 89 individuals in Guantanamo, an average cost of $4.5 million per detainee, when the average cost in a federal prison is $78,000. So this is an extraordinary uh, expenditure, a uh, wasteful expenditure of federal funds that could be better utilized elsewhere. In addition to this, we, are, um, we have 1,200 soldiers guarding the 89 detainees in Guantanamo, which is an extraordinary number. It's something like a, almost 17, uh, a ratio of 17 guards per prisoner, whereas in the average federal prison, the, the ratio is like five prisoners per guard. In, as, as a former Navy general counsel who was involved deeply in personnel issues and allocation of scarce military personnel all over the world, this extravagant and wasteful use of military personnel sitting on a beach guarding individuals while honorable and important work is, is a waste of military manpower. Those individuals could be sent elsewhere. The most important thing though, um, and I could get into the, these, these three issues in some sort of detail, 
But the most important thing to recognize is the, is the strategic cost to the United States uh, as a result of this. And let me quote to you from a cable uh, that reports on a meeting uh, in which General Stanley McChrystal presided over. This took place in uh, our embassy in Kuwait in 2006. McChrystal and senior counterterrorism officials from uh, Iraq and around the region and the Pentagon were meeting to discuss how to win the war on terror in, in Iraq, how to create a sensible counterterrorism strategy for, uh, for Iraq and surrounding countries. And here is the conclusion of the cable, which is, and I'll read from the cable. The primary motivator, the primary motivator for most terrorists and foreign fighters, as reported by US military intelligence, remains perceived US abuses of and lack of due process for detainees at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, uh, Guantanamo Bay, making this issue a key driver of terrorist and foreign fighter flows, a key element undermining uh, 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 international confidence in the United States' ability to conduct an effective war on terror consistent with American values. In 2006, a two-star army general who was a senior member of the, um, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff counterterrorism uh, desk told me that the number one and number two identifiable causes of U.S. combat deaths in Iraq were number one, Abu Ghraib, and number two, Guantanamo, because there were such potent symbols in the hands of jihadist recruiters in, in bringing in foreign fighters to fight against the United States. Now, that was 2006, but that effect is still continuing today. We are losing American lives today. We're threatening American diplomatic and military objectives in the war on terror but as a function of keeping Guantanamo open. We can do better than that. We don't need to maintain Guantanamo. We can close it with a net gain to U.S. military effectiveness around the world. So where are we on Guantanamo? It, um, you're probably all aware that there is a congressional law right now uh, that bans, let's, and if I get this wrong, someone please correct me, that bans the administration from using any federal money to transfer detainees to the United States to the federal prison system. Several weeks ago, the Pentagon issued a report that had been delayed for some time uh, of its proposed plan, President Obama's essentially proposed plan about how to close Guantanamo and shift those people potentially to the United States. They went around and looked at several federal prison facilities, everything from the US Naval Brig in Charleston to, uh, for lack of a better term, federal um, supermax type facilities in Colorado, Fort Leavenworth, other federal maximum security prisons. But the report didn't actually, as a reporter, I was fascinated by this. I had to read every word of that report. It was supposed to be what to do about closing Guantanamo. It in fact had no solid recommendations as far as I could see. The report basically I think as a journalist is very fair to say is dead on arrival on Capitol Hill with both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and I think it's very fair, fair to say, especially in an election year, nobody's gonna touch this thing. So whatever will happen, I think will happen, if anything, after a new president takes office. That would be a political conclusion that I think would be fair to say. It's certainly not likely to happen between now and November. So where we are is just about nowhere in Washington on making progress in either direction on this issue. I want to add, I mean, Alberto, you laid it out. Since, I mean, since the first detainees showed up in Guantanamo years ago, the argument has always been, the issue has always been that, and President Obama has said it, is, it's a massive recruiting tool for terrorists and even for ISIS today. There are people. On, okay. <laughs> um, I will tell you as a journalist what your, you know, senior officials will tell you in Washington when you ask them is you look at, you know, sadly these ISIS videos, you see these ISIS um, hostages in uh, orange jumpsuits and that it's a message that ISIS is sending about Guantanamo, that the orange jumpsuit is still out there and they will get retribution for that. So that's what I do, I do want to ask. So many years since 9-11, is it still truly a recruiting tool? And <coughs> how, you know, people say it's against our culture, it's against our values. Why can't, why can't 
an executive, legislative, and judicial branch then come to a conclusion about what to do. And we're watching the clock for questions. I'll ask you both to comment briefly. <laughs> okay, I'll, I, I think uh, you know, the best article I've seen on this is, is a piece published by a, a scholar named Adam Jacobson in, in June of last year. And, and uh, Jacobson took a look at um, al-Qaeda use of Guantanamo's symbol. There were 72 cases, and as you pointed out, the use of Guantanamo is verbally in written propaganda as well as visually, because as you quite correctly point out, putting people in an orange jumpsuit is a, is a, is a, is a verbal mean. It's a, it's a direct reference to Guantanamo. It's a uh, universal symbol. Uh, something it, terrible. It, that's exactly correct. In so ISIS. it's used both verbally. And with respect to the verbal reports, uh, in the case of, of, of um, al-Qaeda use of Guantanamo as a verbal sim symbol and its written propaganda, there's been really no diminishment of its use uh, from 2002 to 2014. It's, it strengthens the al-Qaeda case that what's happening worldwide is a crusade between the West and, and the Muslim world, which is, of course, the al-Qaeda narrative. It's not the reality of our narrative, but it strengthens it. That, uh, that alleged crusade, let's say, that view of some that there's a crusade, Closing Guantanamo isn't going to get rid of that view. That view will still be out there in parts of the world. Well, actually, that's not correct because, for example, uh, the United States withdrew from, uh, from Abu Ghraib, and the use of Abu Ghraib as a recruiting symbol by all these jihadist forces has dropped radically since we left the, the pace. So there's, there's academic indication, uh, factual indication, to suggest that the same phenomenon would occur if we were to vacate uh, Guantanamo as a, as a detention center for jihadists. Okay, Tom, do you agree that ISIS would go, okay, never mind. Well, okay, let's take ISIS first. So I've heard this argument for years and it's sort of resurfaced in various different contexts and ways. I've never really seen any empirical evidence to justify it. And I, I scoop up a lot of propaganda. I'm a nerd, this is what I do. I look at the stuff every day. And I'll give you an example on ISIS. So just this morning, they released the 14th issue of their English language magazine, Dabiq. And they've, they've released 14 Dabiq magazines now, okay? 836 pages in total across 14 issues. Across 836 pages, only four pages mention Guantanamo, across 836 pages, okay? One of those mentions is in a footnote. Two are in a ISIS commander who left Guantanamo, and, or he was an ISIS, of course, when he was in Guantanamo, but he leaves Guantanamo and he becomes an ISIS commander in the Khorasan. This is simply not a big part of their messaging. It's not a cover story they use. It's not an article they use. They put out hundreds of videos a year. They could easily produce videos on Guantanamo. They don't. You know, it's very infrequently mentioned. And on the orange jumpsuits on ISIS, the thing about this that I find, the reason why I'm not convinced by this argument at all, is orange jumpsuits, first of all, are ubiquitous. They're used all over the, all over the globe. They're used everywhere. I mean, there's a whole fiction, you know, orange is the new black here, you know? If you look in all the fiction movies I can cite, left and right in federal prisons and in fiction across the U.S., orange jumpsuits are used. But the thing that, that strikes me about that is that, that somehow is a subtle way of implying Guantanamo. A couple things about that. First of all, they don't say it means Guantanamo, right? And ISIS isn't exactly subtle about anything. When they want to recruit, when they want to put a message out there, they're very blunt and outspoken about it. They're not going to use some offhand sort of subtle messaging. I just don't buy that. Second of all, what they actually do say in the videos, and I've had to watch the videos, unfortunately, for example, of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff. Stephen actually wrote for the Long War Journal uh, a few times, uh, something we knew. Uh, when they, I had actually watched those videos a couple times, their executions, their beheadings. Um, they didn't mention Guantanamo in those, and in fact, they talked about the American airstrikes and how they were trying to dissuade U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria and get the Obama administration to stop them. But, the other thing that people uh, neglect is that uh, ISIS actually uses multiple color jumpsuits. Yes, orange is the most predominant one, but they also use red, yellow, blue, black. None of this factors into the analysis. And I would say finally, the one, if, if, it, if it does mean something about American detention facilities, and I've got a lot of other subsidiary points on this, but if it does mean something about American detention facilities, it's probably Abu Ghraib that would be in their mind because hundreds of ISIS leaders and fighters were held in orange jumpsuits at Abu Ghraib. All you have to do is go back through the New Yorkers reporting on it and you can see that that was the dominant way they were held. And in fact, when they actually agitate for somebody to be released from custody in Iraq, when ISIS puts out a video saying we want so-and-so to be released from custody in Iraq, that individual is almost invariably either in a dark orange or a red jumpsuit in custody in Iraq. It's not a symbol for Guantanamo. So I don't, I don't buy the whole idea that this is sort of symbolism for Guantanamo. And on, on the Al-Qaeda side, I've got figures for how it's not frequently mentioned there either, but I'll leave it at that. 
Okay. Barbara, if I could just, just say one word. Sure. Just, just by, a friend gave me this, this book here. This is the uh, Inter-American Human Rights uh, Commission report on closing Guantanamo, which was published just a few months ago. First sentence, first page, talks about Guantanamo, and it identifies Guantanamo as a worldwide symbol of abuse. I mean, the, the fact that it's symbolic of American injustice is simply incontestable. It's just simply uh, an established fact worldwide. But I would say, though, it becomes different when you want to say, well, I'd say two points. One, if it's a propaganda tool used by jihadis. I would say I've got massive databases that show it's very infrequently mentioned. And I can give you the statistics for Inspire or for any of QAP's videos or Al-Qaeda's videos. It's very infrequently mentioned. And usually it's embedded in a longer sort of diatribe against the U.S. They could put out a specific recruiting message on it if they wanted to, and they don't. And that's the other point, is that there's a difference between propaganda and recruiting. I have yet to come across a video or an article or anything that says, come fight for us before Guantanamo. I'm sure at some level out in the ether this plays, but it's not, it's not, I think that it's utility as a recruiting tool or as propaganda for enemies. I think the statistics, and I've got a lengthy report coming out on this, bear out that, that just the case isn't there. You know, I, I think there are to, other issues to talk yeah, about. Yeah, you know, I still have to wonder as a journalist though, so you close Guantanamo, you send everybody to a federal prison. I don't know that if there is a propaganda or recruiting tool out there somewhere. I don't know if sending everybody to federal prison makes it go away. I mean, we've had 15 years of it. It is now part of what American history is all about. Let me shift for one minute, and uh, I want everybody to start thinking of some questions in about five minutes. Um, so if you send them to federal prison, there's two issues. You either release them back to their home countries or a country that will take them. You find the recidivism rate is actually much less under President Obama than it was under President Bush. All the statistics show recidivism is there, but it goes down. People do get released, they do go back to the fight. Is that a risk? So first question is, is that a risk worth taking? If you simply send them on into the federal prison system, can they be kept secure? Let's start with that basic question. You send them all to Supermax, can they be kept secure? Nobody's escaped from a supermax yeah, I mean, in American history. I think it's obvious it's so be. why do many in Congress say it's not safe? Not in my backyard. You find politically in Washington, I think everybody knows this. Every congressman, every senator will say, yeah, fine. Not in my state. It's a risk to my community. You see congressmen after senators saying this, it is a risk to my community to have these people in my community. That's a factually baseless uh, assertion. I mean, we have... 443 terrorists convicted, detained in federal prisons in 21 different states around the country. Some of them are as, as virulent as anybody in Guantanamo, and there's never been a problem. So, so that's a political statement that's being made in Washington rather than, what a surprise, yeah. um, <laughs> rather than a factually, legally based argument. In, That'd be one thing you both agree on. Oh, right? I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I think you know, I don't think there's any doubt that you could safely, uh, you know, imprison them in the U.S. But that's why I started my remarks with, my remarks got to the heart. My opening remarks got to the heart of the issue, as far as I'm concerned. Which is the reason why there are political objections to moving some of these detainees or all the detainees to the U.S. is because basically, on the right, there's an objection to basically creating a Gitmo North, where you haven't solved any of these cases legally. All you've done is basically move them physically from Guantanamo to a facility that's exactly the same. Because many do not have enough evidence for prosecution in a system in the United States. Right, and this States. is where I this is where I'm willing to speak out of turn as a non-lawyer. Uh, I think, first of all, if you look at statistic, uh, what the Obama's task force recommended, 31 of them were recommended, of the current detainees were recommended for prosecution. None of those prosecutions are going on in any meaningful sense as far as I can tell. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't, no, I think that's wrong. I don't And why is that, briefly? Um, I, th I think the, the pr uh, pr principal reason is because the military commission system is flawed. And actually, there's a second reason, is that a lot of these people were tortured. And how to deal with the evidence dealing with torture has been a, not a major blockage uh, to the military commission well, system. I, I, I'm not a defender of torture, but uh, the one thing I will say on the, 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 but the Obama task force actually specifically addressed this and said that's not really a large issue in terms of prosecuting them, in terms of the, the torture issue. That in fact, they thought that they had enough. And I, if actually, if you look at the guys who, who were tortured, who actually had the most abusive uh, you know, uh, techniques used against them, a lot of them, the evidentiary basis for prosecuting them is, is, is quite sufficient, independent of whatever they give up in interrogations. And, and that, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think yeah. there's a basis for prosecution. Uh, the, the concept of indefinite detention is both abhorrent to American values and law and also unnecessary because I think there is a, me a method and a basis to prosecute 
all of these individuals, the, the individuals in Guantanamo who warrant prosecution. Because theoretically, I'm told, and I emphasize that theoretically, you could have one of the 9-11 alleged perpetrators go through the tribunal system, the, through the military justice system, be found innocent, and yet be found not guilty, and yet remain in perpetual detention. That's not been decided yet. I, and I think the United States needs to grapple with that issue because the, the notion of injecting indefinite detention in the American body of laws is really contrary to our, 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 our sense of values and, and fundamental human rights for, for And anybody. that would be the one thing that's different about Gitmo than anything else. I, I think in the federal, the, in I, the U.S. justice system. I mean, there are a lot indefinite of Indefinite detention. There are a lot of things about military commissions and Gitmo that, that are different from the federal justice system, but that's that probably be the most salient factor. Okay. Can I just add on the 9-11 guys, I would be shocked, and this is why, I'd be shocked if they were found not guilty in a criminal court of law. I mean, we talk about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramsey Ben Alshid, for example, you have them on Al Jazeera bragging about what they did, you know? You don't really need a lot of super secret evidence to try these guys, you know? And, that, and to me, that's why I think, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is just sort of commonsensical, you know? And, uh, and it's sort of, that's part of the problem though, what I'm saying here, the, the heart of the matter is, is that you have a number of dangerous detainees, a number of them according to President Obama's own task force, how do you take care of their cases going forward so you solve it? That's the real issue, because Guantanamo's not gonna receive any new detainees, and we're just gonna keep having the same debate over and over again. And my answer is we have to open up to prosecution. So the Guantanamo debate, the Guantanamo question, how much is legal, how much is politics? I think it's largely political. It's become largely political. It didn't have to be, but the fact that it's become uh, partisan and uh, it's become uh, an issue which seems to be incapable of, of rational discussion in, uh, in Washington in particular is, is, uh, is unfortunate. It's also hurting the United States diplomatically and militarily. Yeah, I mean, politics, of course, looms large on everything, but you know, in, in a great example of that is this became a huge issue, obviously, with. President Obama's announcement in January 2009. And I've, I've objected to- Second day in office, as you all right. will remember, he said he was closing it. And I, I warned very early on that you were dealing with a high risk population. This wasn't gonna be as easy as he, you know, I think thought it was gonna be easy uh, early on. But you know, what's interesting to me politically is, and there's no question in my mind that dangerous individuals have been transferred, and there are a variety of reasons why the, the recidivism rate is lower right now for the Obama transfers versus the Bush transfers which I won't filibuster on that. But the Bush transfers, one of the things that, that, that people neglected throughout the entire Bush years was people didn't realize how many high-risk detainees or risks that President Bush was taking in his transfer policies and this whole thing. And, and so, for example, as an indisputed fact, uh, you know, one of the things that happened over time was that the Bush administration just decided to repatriate over 100 Saudis to Saudi Arabia. And you talk to military intelligence officials, you look at their files, these weren't guys who were tortured by and large. You know, These were guys who there was plenty of evidence against them and who they were. They were known to be a high-risk population. There were plenty of warnings that you can't transfer a lot of these guys. And what happened was we essentially, the Bush administration essentially, not we, <laughs> the Bush administration essentially uh, transferred guys who became half of Al-Qaeda and Peninsula's new founding leadership. Uh, so and that's why we got AQAP in early 2009 in part was because we gave them some talent back. And what I'm saying is, as somebody who's interested in national security issues and see this going on, what I'm saying is even now under the current regime, um, you know, with the periodic review boards of Guantanamo and the like, dangerous individuals are being transferred because there's no legal conclusion to their case. And what I'm saying is there needs to be a compromise across the political aisle to solve this. And I don't think either Republicans or Democrats fully understand the dynamic here. The Republicans, by putting up roadblocks to prosecution, are paving the way for ultimately for the periodic review board and the Obama administration to transfer guys who I think, in some cases, a lot of cases, could in fact be prosecuted. All right, let's get some questions going from the audience. Um, we have Mike Nobe, uh, why don't you step to the microphones on either side, and um, we'll, uh, don't be, ma'am? You still having trouble hearing? Okay. <coughs> All right, well, we'll work on that, but we'll start with um, uh, Carrie whenever, maybe we can switch out. But may, as you ask your question, tell us your name and uh, give us your question. Hi, 
I'm Marilyn Thompson. I'm a Shorenstein Fellow uh, this spring. Um, I'm wondering if one of the guests could please uh, bring us up to date on the status of hunger strikes within the uh, facility and uh, new developments on the issue of force feeding and whether that is in fact an abusive treatment of prisoners. I forget the exact number, but I think, um, I think there have been 103 hunger strikers out of the total uh, Guantanamo population, which is on the order of close to 800, some, something like 780. So it's a fairly high number of individuals who at one time or another have engaged in hunger strikes. Um, force feeding is regarded uh, uh, generally as a violation of personal dignity and a violation of the human rights of the, of the individual. Um, medical ethics generally around the world uh, require that an individual give consent to be force feeded. And of course, uh, in Guantanamo, consent is not sought or obtained from, from any of the detainees. Okay, okay. We'll move side to side here. Sir? How you doing? Thank you for coming. My name is Andrew Hansen. I'm a 2L at the law school. Um, so if the Obama administration is basing their authority on the laws of armed conflict, the, the detention authority, most of the people there, I'm assuming all the people there were brought there with the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq. And since those two wars have, for all practical purposes, ended, uh, when does that detention authority end, or is the you know ISIL ISIS campaign a justifiable extension of those two hostilities for that hostility detention to continue? I think um, well, well, there's debate on the issue. Uh, most people would, uh, let's say, the majority of legal scholars would take the position that the war against ISIS and Al Qaeda will be continuing, and the uh, authorization for use of military force as a legal vehicle to permit continued uh, detention of, of individuals captured during the war uh, is sufficient legal authority for the, the continued detention of, of many of these individuals. Now, if these were Taliban prisoners, for example, uh, the, the answer may be different. So you would have to make a case-by-case -case determination as to the basis for the detention. But most people would say, say there's broad authority for the president to continue holding detainees for a while longer, although not indefinitely would be the position of most, most people. But I want to jump in now. Something actually, my reporting has, we, we've reported on some of this. So there's two detainees that US Special Forces captured as a result of their anti-ISIS operations. One was a woman named Um Sayef, captured by US Special Forces in Syria during a raid that killed her husband. Um, they got a lot of intelligence out this raid. They took Um Sayef, this woman, US Special Forces took her back across the border from Syria into Iraq and eventually turned her over to Iraqi authorities for further interrogation and detention. They could do that. She had Iraqi citizenship. They felt that was the legal way to go with her. They also captured recently a man who is said to be one of the senior leaders of the ISIS chemical weapons program captured by US Special Forces in Iraq, turned over to Iraqis for interrogation and debriefing. If you are a reporter and you ask the Pentagon or the CIA or the intelligence community or the Justice Department, what do you do when you capture someone in Syria? What is your, who are you going to, and they are a Syrian citizen. You can't send them back to Iraq, their, their home country. Their home country isn't Iraq, their home country isn't, they're not some foreign fighter from Europe. Who are you actually planning to turn them over to if you are not gonna, if you are not gonna have a new program to hold detainees, which the US says it doesn't, and you're not gonna put them in Gitmo, and you're not able to bring them back for federal prosecution because of evidentiary problems, what exactly are you gonna do with these people? It's a fascinating question to which I'm still waiting for the answer. <laughs> Can I just interject one quick point on this? Because yes, but the AUMF. Um, this is a little bit of a, a curveball I'm gonna throw you on the answer to this, but Part of the AUMF discussion from 2001, and this is this is one. Of, sorry, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Um, that I think needs to be fleshed out is, and this is something that's very hard to understand as an American citizen, you know, sitting here in 2016. Um, the U.S. intelligence, U.S. military, still have a very difficult time defining the enemy to this day. And what I'll say is they can't even define Al Qaeda. There are 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. We count at least 22 different definitions of Al Qaeda. Um, because a lot of their stuff is not driven by fact, it's driven by various other issues. And so uh, we have very definitive notions of what Al-Qaeda is because I'm a nerd who scoops up stuff for 12 hours a day in terms of defining what it is. Um, but 
so to your point on the AUMF, what I think part of the problem is in the discussion, the debate is that we've lost sight. Nobody can even define who the enemy is clearly anymore. And so it becomes territorial, a territorial definition, which actually has shifted over time. So for example, you know, a senior Al-Qaeda leader who actually has a management position in Al-Qaeda may not be located in Afghanistan or Pakistan anymore, may not, is, uh, not located in Iraq, but actually may be in Yemen or maybe in Syria, somewhere else. And so this is where it becomes a problem of the territorial definition of it versus the actual organizational definition. Now the Obama administration says, basically we have the authorization to go after these guys, whatever geography they're on. Okay, we have about 20 minutes. I wanna get everyone who's standing up, get their questions in. Ma'am? Hi, my name's Charlotte Parto, and I'm a freshman at the college, and my question is how you think Guantanamo will play into the upcoming presidential election in the fall. Uh, arguments on both sides, uh, you, know, uh, you know, but. Democrats and Republicans? Yeah, of course, I mean, you know, everybody, you know, none of the talking points really make much sense if you actually investigate them. Uh, but, you know, but part, of the, part of the problem is, you know, you have guys like Donald Trump out there talking about how we're gonna ship guys to Guantanamo and torture until they talk and tell us everything they know. I mean, I, I guarantee you Donald Trump, A, doesn't know anything about jihadism. He doesn't know anything about Al-Qaeda or ISIS. He doesn't know anything about interrogations, and yet this guy has got a, a loud sort of uh, you know, mouthpiece to project his views. And in fact, nobody's been, even been shipped to Guantanamo since I think 2007, you know, I think was the last time a detainee was shipped there. And, and yet he's still talking as if it's a possibility somebody's gonna be shipped there. So I think basically ignorance is your answer. What, what the, <laughs> I'm thinking Marco Rubio um, as, as well. Marco Rubio has uh, did, when he was a candidate, uh, call for the expanded use of Guantanamo. So it seems to be a, a factor or an issue on the Republican side, not as much of an issue on the Democratic side. My name, my name is Juliet Keeley. I'm a graduate student at the Kennedy School. And uh, my question is regarding the reporting done by the International Committee for the Red Cross that publicly criticized the U.S. for um, the inhumane and violation of human rights at Guantanamo Bay. And I quote your foundation in saying that the conditions of detention are humane. Um, so my question really is, regarding um, the reputation of the United States, what is Guantanamo doing to the US as a beacon of human rights worldwide, not just in regards to jihadism? What was that from on the foundation? I'm sorry, what was the quote it's from? A, it's a quote from your, um, from your website. I don't know, I didn't write it, but um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I mean, listen, I, I do my own stuff. I mean, I think, I think overall right now they are humane. I think that they've been humane with the exception of, you know, debating force feeding and sort of those types of things. I don't think that uh, a lot of the guys are being tortured there right now at all. You know, I don't, don't think that's the case. I don't think that's been prevalent for quite a while, you know. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't debate force feeding and other issues along those lines, but you know, overall, I don't think that it's a, a sort of a torture mill that it's been portrayed as. So. Because the uh, military commissions are seen as unlawful and a violation of uh, fundamental due process to individuals under standard human rights analysis, uh, as I've mentioned in my, my presentation, uh, Guantanamo is seen universally as a symbol of injustice, but it's the, it's the piece of the military commissions, indefinite detention, and other legal treatments of the detainees. I, I probably would agree with, with Tom that, as far as we know, there's no torture going on in, in place and no, no physical abuse being uh, uh, used against the detainees, but nonetheless, it remains a symbol. It's diminished our moral authority. It's diminished our ability to be a leader in international human rights, and it's, and it's tarnished American reputation and soft power. So these, these effects continue thanks to the continuing functioning of Guantanamo. Hi, I'm Tom Abel. I'm a freshman at the college. I would just wonder, how would you evaluate President Obama's efforts to close Guantanamo? And if his, if his end goal is to close the detention center, um, how, how should he go about doing it? Look, I, I think President Obama's made a good faith effort to try and close it. I think people on the left would criticize him and say he hasn't. I think he believes he has. I think he's, he certainly had a couple different ambassadors try and do it. I think, as I testified all those years ago at that OK Corral testimony in House of Representatives, I think they ran into a lot of logistical issues and practical problems that they ran into that they didn't expect, I think were, could be expected. And so I think ultimately it comes down to a debate, as I've said over and over again, if there's one thing you take from me on this, 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 is that basically it's gonna come down to a debate about how are you gonna treat these detainees who nobody wants to let go, who are either slated for prosecution or are being held under the law of war because they're considered too dangerous to release but not feasible for prosecution. 
I think there needs to be a compromise across the aisle politically in order to prosecute more of these detainees, dozens of them. And I think that's ultimately what this comes down to, whether you know, the right or left wants to agree with that or not. I think if you just look at it practically, that's what it comes down to. And he can't solve all that. I'll agree with Tom on this. I think that's largely correct. And I think um, while Obama's heart was in the right place and he had the, the right policy objective, uh, he didn't take seriously enough um, the Republican objections to the closure of Guantanamo. And as an example, uh, John McCain, who um, could, could be an ally, would be an ally, uh, has been asking for a detailed plan to close Guantanamo, and the plan was late in delivery and wasn't really a full plan, as, as Barbara and I think Tom would, would agree. The failure of the White House to take those valid concerns seriously and address them earlier during the, uh, the, the administration has been almost a fatal uh, mistake in, in uh, the pursuit of the goal to close the, uh, the base. Everybody, uh, at least who's standing at the moment, to get their questions answered, so we'll pick up the pace and start. Okay, I'll try and be quick. My name is Jonas we'll Huskin. We'll try and be quick I'm here, I'm a too. graduate <laughs> student at the Design School, um, and I want to just take a brief, brief minute to ask a question about the, the military base outside of the detention center, which is the oldest offshore naval base in the United States military from 1902. Um, it's been contested by the Cuban government and Cuban, the Cuban people um, for almost a century now as an Ill illegal occupation of Cuba. And I wonder if this conflict is actually political and not uh, legal in many ways, if Obama's inroads that he's made only weeks ago with uh, President Castro and talking about lifting the embargo and making political inroads towards opening up economic flows into the region of Eastern Cuba and Cuba at large, is that possibly the way to an end game that kind of gets out of this political quagmire is is maybe there a bigger you mean picture? Giving Gitmo back to the Cubans. Absolutely, yeah. I think there are a lot of U.S. military officials that wouldn't like that. I can say that. <laughs> you know, they 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 consider consider it uh, key for uh, naval crossing uh, and that sort of thing and and, and surveillance along those lines. Uh, you know, that's basically all I got to add to that. You know, I'll. I'll I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think that's, a, that's really in the cards. I, I, and I would disagree. What I saw about Guantanamo, uh, uh, leaving aside the detention facility, uh, is that it has very little, little uh, or no military value per se. It's not used as a training base any longer. I think surveillance can be, uh, and is being performed through other platforms and other locations. The closure of Vieques is an indication of, uh, you know, Caribbean islands are really not, not particularly important uh, for the American defense establishment. Where it is very important, though, is as a, as, a, as a place to house uh, migrants like the Haitian refugee crisis, the Cuban refugee crisis. Cuba could go down the tubes uh, before there's a transition to a stable uh, free market democracy, in which case there, there could be hundreds of thousands of Cubans that would seek to make uh, landfall in, in Florida. And the, uh, the ability to use uh, Guantanamo as a place to potentially store uh, or house some of these, these detainees, for, or rather these migrants at times could be very helpful to the United States. Thank you. My name is Sam Leichinger. I'm a sophomore at the college. The question is for all of you, and particularly Mr. Mora. Where were the voices of opposition in the Bush administration? Uh, and at the high levels, were people aware? And what was the discussion on the activities at the detention center? Yeah, this is a complex, this is a complex question. Um, I remember um, the Department of Navy didn't have much participation at first in detention operations. This was handled in the operational chain of command, uh, the, the combatant commanders and so forth. But uh, about 2004, uh, Secretary Gordon England and the Department of the Navy, Secretary Ray Mabus was here a few minutes ago, um, was given operational responsibilities for Guantanamo. So we started getting involved in the, uh, in the issue. And what was astonishing to Secretary England, when he would come back from the first time from interagency meetings on the issue of detention operations and interrogation and the other related issues, was how unpressurized the system was. Now, unpressurized in Gordon England's parlance meant that nobody owned, nobody owned the issue. It was the, the ownership and management authority over uh, detention operations was distributed among the agencies with nobody really in charge. And that continued to inertia and drift, which I think to a large measure has continued to this day. So uh, it, does it, does, it does happen. Yeah. The, the full answer to the question is much more complicated than, than what I've just given you. Just add to that, uh, I agree. I think based on everything I've read and studied and talking to officials that were involved in it, the whole system was ad hoc. That's the whole point. Basically, you know, it was 
sort of an ad hoc way to detain guys after 9-11. And it sort of never was thought through in terms of making it stable in the long run. And, you know, quite frankly, the Bush administration didn't want to keep all those 779 detainees have been held at Guantanamo one time or another, including the current 89. Mm -hmm. The Bush administration transferred two-thirds of the 779 themselves, 530-some of them themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Bush administration itself didn't even want to keep most of these guys in the long run. Um, and But the problem, I would say, is that because, we, because this has all become stalemated politically around Guantanamo, I don't think we have any kind of stable, long-run detention idea in mind and how we can detain guys in conflicts, because these conflicts are still going on, these wars are still going on, and we have no real stable platform for doing it. ISIS, well, also Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is still very much, in the, very much in the game. And, you know, to, to what your point was earlier, Barbara, you know, we're capturing people, and, and how we capture people and detain them is very ad hoc. Some people go to the Iraqis or go to the Kurds. I got to tell you, you know, Kurds are not exactly known for playing with kid gloves with detainees, so, you know, and this is a side effect of the fact that we haven't really come up with a, a system that's going to be stable. Okay. We have three more people. Don't you go away, sir. <laughs> we'll get to you in one second, ma'am. Hi. Catherine Sickink. I'm a faculty member here at the Kennedy School. And I've heard both of you agree that the remaining uh, prisoners could be and should be prosecuted in U.S. federal courts. Uh, I've heard about the tremendous costs of this uh, of this uh, facility, its uh, effects on on U.S. Uh, reputation in the world, our ability to get things done, but I haven't heard a single argument yet for why we should keep Guantanamo open. Uh, and it seems to me that the only argument I've heard is that members of the U.S. Congress uh, refuse to allocate the funds to transfer people to uh, federal prisons and federal courts. Well, I mean, this is why I, I said in accepting this event, I'm, I'm sort of idiosyncratic on what, what's going on here. I'm giving you the answer for why it hasn't closed. You know, and my view, my view is that, um, look, what are we talking about, keeping it open, right? We're talking about 89 detainees, okay? This is not some massive operation at this point, right? We have a discrete number of cases, right? There should be some way of resolving this in a reasonable fashion when two people sit down and reasonably discuss it. Nobody knew it was being sent there, contrary to Trump or whatever his fantasies are. Nobody's been sent there for years, right? This isn't an active interrogation facility. Nobody's being interrogated there. There's no intelligence coming out of there anymore, right? So this comes down to, very simple, right? How do you handle the guys who are very dangerous, who you don't want to free, you don't want to transfer, and you have either been slated for prosecution or have been slated for detention under the law of war. My answer is, right, that given all the practical surroundings, this is why the sort of the myth of the myth of the whole Guantanamo is that it's going to be kept open indefinitely and it's going to be this big interrogation mill for detainees and everything. That's all a myth. That's all over with, right? So the question is how do you deal with the 89 guys who are there right now? That's why I said that. And my, my point in all this is the one thing I would say is, the one place where I, I draw the line on closing Guantanamo, I'm not willing to close Guantanamo tomorrow if that means we're going to transfer some of the, mo the most high-risk guys that we have in our custody. Because as the nerd who studies these jihadist organizations, some of these guys have a disproportionate effect on the battlefield. Okay, And I can give you examples of that over and over again from Guantanamo. right? And so my point is, I would rather have a legal solution where they're prosecuted and a, a, a end has brought to their case where everybody's satisfied rather than having a risk of them eventually being transferred in the future. Uh, my name is Mark. Um, this is more a question for Alberto. Uh, but you know, given how we keep hearing more and more about how bad the human rights situation is at the Florence Supermax prison, you know, strictly from a human rights perspective, how much does the treatment of the prisoners improve if they're transferred from Guantanamo to Florence? Well, actually, um, that, that's an open question. But if you were to ask that of the defense lawyers for the, uh, for the uh, Guantanamo Military Commission uh, prisoners, probably the, the, the consensus would be that it would worsen. It, it, it might worsen. Uh, supermax prisons are not pleasant places in which to live. And, and um, Guantanamo, as, as a matter of living conditions, may actually be to be preferred, maybe to be preferred to that, which is why the Obama plan to close Guantanamo contains uh, request for uh, building facilities that would be uh, commensurate or congruent with our international legal obligations to these these detainees under um, uh, international humanitarian law and human rights conditions. So the the savings from closing Guantanamo would be not straight because of these uh, construction costs to take into account precisely that factor. Essentially building a mini Gitmo by the rules facility and for lack of a better phrase sticking it on Supermax property. That could be the way to do it. Right. Answer the last question from the Harvard faculty. 
Hi, Doug Johnson uh, uh, from the Carr Center for Human Rights. Um, Mr. Jocelyn, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical of your information about the, uh, the prisoners that remain. Um, God knows that no one loves a nerd more than Harvard. Um, um, so I appreciate uh, your, your uh, desire to do research. But um, having talked to a number of the defense attorneys for the prisoners there, um, their complaint is that um, they're not even allowed to see the information uh, that supposedly exi exists against their clients. I wonder if you uh, both could speak to the ongoing problem of, of secrecy, the lack of transparency uh, that the American people have to what the actual conditions are that are there. Question. It well, I hope so. <laughs> it isn't just closed Gitmo. It is what's a legal process that's underway, which can be happen in any geographic location. Well, I, I don't know if uh, those of you have read uh, the Guantanamo Diary, uh, 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 a, a prisoner in Guantanamo, uh, Salahi. Uh, and I talked with an NCI officer who had been in charge of the review of uh, the, all the prisoners there, and I asked him, uh, this, this man comes across as a very thoughtful, uh, humane person. Um, what's the evidence? Uh, and what he said was there is absolutely no evidence, having gone through all of the books, but that people that the refusal to release him is precisely because after Quintani, he was the most uh, tortured person at, at Guantanamo. So again, the question is, uh, how are Americans or how are Harvard people really um, to get into, uh, into an understanding behind sure. the veil of secrecy, which, which not only affects our uh, confidence in the government, but surely uh, affects the confidence uh, of the world. Well, here you surely will agree with me because I've called for transparency for years, and I said that the Bush administration really did itself a disservice by not being transparent. I think basically everything should be released. I think most of the stuff should actually be released to the public, not just you know to, to defense attorneys. I would disagree with you on Slahi. I know his case fairly well after researching him for years. You know there was a district court uh, opinion in the, his petition for uh, writ of habeas corpus, which granted his petition which was then appealed by the Obama administration. That uh, opinion, to my mind, was actually logically incongruent in many places. And the facts, actually, if you look at them on their face value, as decided in the court of law, the facts were enough to deny his petition for uh, habeas corpus in itself. In fact, there's a whole timeline in the decision you can see where he's working with and interacting with al-Qaeda members and helping them all throughout the years after he supposedly, magically, only in time for his petition, said that he had actually broken off from al-Qaeda. I think he's a very dangerous guy. I don't think. He's an innocent. Uh, I think Stuart Crouch, who was the military prosecutor, was initially assigned to actually prosecute him. You can look this up in the Wall Street Journal. He said that he wouldn't prosecute them because of what had been done to Slahi, but yet he was convinced he had blood on his hands. So that's the guy who actually objected to Slahi's treatment and yet knew the case files. What I would say is my presentation, if you listen now, I say the statistics, I started with the Obama administration's own task force says about the remaining 89 guys and 66 recommendations of prosecution and the recommendations for continuing law of war detention. This is a task force that was set up ostensibly as part of the effort to close Guantanamo, right? I would say that all the information that went into their uh, process should be reviewed, it should be released. I don't think there's any reason why most of this stuff can't be released. I thought that most of the files that were leaked online, the WikiLeaks from JTF Gitmo threat assessments, I thought all those could have been leaked without any harm to our national security. I think most of the stuff can be released tomorrow with no harm to our national security. So that's where I would say that on the transparency issue, I'm right with you. I've been arguing for transparency on this stuff for years, and I'm all for it. I can agree with more, more with Tom. I think um, I, I, I can't tell you about the 89 people who are left in Guantanamo. 35 of them have been uh, found to be releasable or designated as releasable by the, uh, by the uh, is, it, is it 23? Additional detention, they're Yemenis, and then six have been approved for transfer. So, so, but what I can tell you is that looking at the, um, at the Guantanamo prisoners when, when I was in the Navy, and when we started these uh, administrative review boards to, to review the evidence to, that justified their designation as uh, unlawful enemy combatants, in some cases, our people will come back, and I looked at some of the files, there was zero evidence concerning some of the detainees that would justify any kind of finding of uh, unlawful combatant status. So uh, with, without making an opinion as to any of the ones currently in Guantanamo, 
what is, I think, beyond dispute is that some innocent people were unfortunately shipped to Guantanamo and held there for years before they were released, and that's, that's, that's one of the facts that contributes to the, um, the fact that Guantanamo is regarded as a symbol of American injustice globally. Okay, we'll end, we'll end where we started tonight. Everybody came with an opinion. Anybody's opinion change? I don't see a single hand. That's, that's I think, tells all of us quite a bit about the, the evening. So, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating issue. It always has been and always will be. Thank you so much. It was great to meet, see all of you.